Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 42, State-Level Medicare for All. Is it possible? My guest, Matthew Lawrence, J.D., is an associate professor of law at Emory University and specializes in healthcare finance, administrative law, and addictions. He has written widely on these subjects with articles published or forthcoming in several prominent law journals. In addition to his teaching and scholarship, Lawrence possesses a wealth of experience in the federal government. Previously, he has worked on health care regulatory issues during the Obama and Trump administrations as a trial attorney in the Department of Justice's Federal Programs Branch. He most recently served as a special legal advisor to the U.S. House of Representatives Budget Committee Majority. Professor Matthew Lawrence, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. I'm very happy to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. We're going to be discussing Medicaid for All and doing universal health care through the states. But before we do that, how would you describe our current health care system of financing? Our current system of health care financing, well, it's a system in name only. It is uh, a fragmented, uh, I think probably path-dependent um, jumble. Uh, and if I can briefly give an overview, you have Medicare, which is for individuals age 65 and older, uh, as well as disabled. Um, that's paid for almost entirely by the federal government, except people pay some share of that, of beneficiaries through cost sharing. Then you have Medicaid, which is for the low income, and that's paid for by the federal government and states, as, uh, as well as to some extent enrollees in some states. Then you have employer insurance, which is paid for a little bit by the federal government through tax subsidies, a little bit by employers, and a little bit by uh, employees, uh, both through premiums and through cost sharing. And then you have the individual marketplace, which is anyone who doesn't have insurance through one of those or some other programs. I won't go through all the details, uh, federal employee health benefits, uh, veterans benefits, TRICARE, and so on. Uh, but individual market, which is the ACA market largely uh, for everyone else who falls through the cracks of all of that. So it is, it is just very fragmented and at every level uh, confusing. Even within a program, it's confusing because um, you have a division of responsibility between maybe an insurer and patients, and maybe doctors are bearing some costs and so on. Now, normally when I talk about universal health care, I talk about Medicare for all and doing it at the federal level. But with the background that you just provided on the financing, would there be a way to pursue universal health care using Medicaid for all at the state level? The answer is yes, but, and to expand maybe a third word or a symbol, it's yes, but dollar sign. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and if you'd like more of an explanation of that, if a state were to strike oil and get a lot of money from that and decide it wanted to provide 
a healthcare benefit for everyone in the state with that, you know, with some of the revenue from that. It could do so. And there's nothing legally that would prevent that. In fact, states are sort of primary in our legal system. They, they come before the federal government. U.S. Constitution, uh, you know, is, is the states and the people recognizing some power in the federal government, but the states have sort of a prior power. They have what's called a police power. They can do most things in the public interest as long as they don't violate the Constitution. So a state that had the money could provide a health care benefit for its residents as long as it didn't violate the Constitution, say, by providing a, a benefit in a, in, a, in a racist way or something like that that violated the Equal Protection Clause. So that's the yes, but then I said yes, but money. Healthcare, obviously, is very expensive. And states have a very limited ability to come up with the money to pay for healthcare benefits that would exceed what they already pay for. So, you know, I think to step back for a moment, what we have in mind when we say universal health care, you know, at the very least we have in mind that there would be coverage offered to some people who currently don't have it. So there'd be an expansion of coverage. And I described kind of our fragmented system before. There's people, uh, tens of millions of people still left out who aren't covered under our current system. And, you know, at the very least, when we say universal coverage, we're thinking, well, we're getting more people covered, maybe up to getting everyone covered. We'll talk more maybe later about whether we also mean single payer in the sense that everyone who's covered has the same payer and there's some kind of uniformity efficiencies and things like that. But if we just mean we're getting more people covered. So could the state, you know, I just moved to Georgia. Could Georgia say we want to pay, make sure that some of the people who don't have insurance in our state get it? Well, the state has to find the money for that. And I want to flag maybe three, I think, things that make that very hard for a state to do. Um, the first is, and maybe the most important, is that most states are required by their constitutions to balance their budgets each year. So that's very different from the federal government, right? Usually the federal government spends more um, than it generates in revenue and is borrowing from the future. States, for the most part, can't do that or have strict limitations on the extent to which they do that, which means they have to get the money to cover whatever they're going to do in a given year. And Moreover, state revenue depends on, and I'm going to say a, you know, a word and then I'm going to come back to it, so I might emphasize the word. It depends on the business cycle, by which I mean the uh, cycle of recessions and then growth and then recessions and so on that we have over the years. And uh, during a recession, state tax revenues tend to go down, especially depending on how the state you know, tax system works. And they go down because people are making less money in the state. People have less money. Uh, maybe the value of assets are going down. So, so states tend to have less money in a recession. But often, the programs the state is providing its residents, uh, like maybe we're going to provide extra or we're going to provide health insurance for lower income residents or something. Often, those benefits, they become more costly when there's a downturn in the business cycle. And, you know, if, if listeners want to go look up uh, David Super is a Legal academic has written a lot about kind of the business cycle and how it affects state's fiscal situation. But it just makes it especially hard for a state to say, we're going to take on a new cost for certain residents because the state doesn't just have to afford it during good times. 
It has to be able during bad times when its revenues go down and at the same time need goes up, it needs to be able to afford it. And it's very hard for a state to kind of be managed in a way that it, it can take on that cost, not just this year, but potentially a future year when there's a downturn in the business cycle. Um, another challenge for a state in terms of financing is there might be some attractiveness if a state expands healthcare coverage to more residents, that may, it may find that the residents in the next state over decide they're going to move in because they want health care. Uh, so if you imagine somebody, I just mentioned Georgia, uh, Georgia decides it's going to have universal health care and anybody uh, in Georgia who doesn't have health care uh, coverage can have it through the state or, you know, funded or subsidized by the state. Well, somebody who doesn't have health care coverage in South Carolina might say, well, when I need uh, health insurance or I need coverage, I'm going to go to Georgia and I'm going to move to Georgia and then I'll get that coverage. I don't know the extent to which that would happen, but that kind of, if you know that they would come, effect is something a state faces that the federal government does not necessarily face. Because um, in that case, you're talking about people moving countries instead of states. Uh, and, and some of the research there says people don't tend to do that for a benefit like that. So I've listed two. I'll list a third kind of challenge for a state expanding coverage. And this has to do with the interaction with the federal government. But if a state were to provide coverage for any resident in the state, it's automatically enrolled in what's called Georgia Care. I guess we'll come back to that example. Uh, and, and the state of Georgia is going to provide, you know, a universal single-payer benefit to any resident of the state. That would draw residents out of existing programs that are paid largely by the federal government like Medicare potentially, or maybe Medicaid, some of the interactions would get complicated. But for every resident you draw out of a federal program, the state is basically leaving money on the table um, because there's people currently whose healthcare costs are essentially being paid for by the federal government, and the state would be losing that. So that just creates a third challenge uh, for a state that wanted to finance uh, its own healthcare coverage expansion or single-payer system. Well, your last point brings me to a question that I wanted to ask. And one question is just if a state wanted to do it, how could they do it under current federal law? But the other question I had, and this relates to your last point, is that is there a way that they could say, hey, we want to provide some type of single payer health care? Can we take the money? that you provide us, say, for Medicare, Medicaid, and CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, and use that money and apply it to our single-payer program. Would that even be possible? Yeah, that is a great question. Here I can give a one-word answer of maybe. So just to step back again for a moment, um, this won't be a very precise number, but, but if, you, if you look at, on average, how much the federal government pays for health care costs, on average, it's about 40% of the health care costs incurred by state residents are paid for by the federal government. Now, um, there's, there's a great study that you actually flagged for me, uh, you know, when we talked prior to this podcast, uh, which is Himmelstein and co-authors that shows that it's about 70% of healthcare costs in the United States today are paid for by taxpayers, which is a huge number already. So, um, you know, that's just an interesting point. 
that study is talking about all taxpayer-funded health care coverage, so it's both health benefits paid for by the federal government and health benefits currently paid for by state. Because we're talking about like a state, you know, and what it might do, uh, let's focus on the federal government. So if you're Georgia, again, on average, if you're Georgia, 40% of your residents' health care costs are today being paid for by the federal government. And that through Medicare, that's through Medicaid, that's through employer subsidies and other programs. And, and as we were just discussing, uh, you know, you don't want to create Georgia care and pay for health insurance for all of your residents and leave that 40% of medical costs on the table. Or you just might not be able to because it's so fiscally challenging in the first place to, to expand your coverage. So your question is right on point, which is to ask, well, is there a way for the state of Georgia to say, well, okay, we want to create a single-payer system or something. Can we get some of those federal dollars that would have gone to Medicare, that would have gone to Medicaid for low income, or would have gone, uh, let's say, through the ACA? Can we get those federal dollars to pay for our, for our new proposal? The reason the answer is maybe is, first, that there are legal authorities under current law by which there's some flexibility to get the money that would have gone to a state into the state single-payer system. There is some flexibility under current law, and we can talk more about that in a moment. And actually, when Vermont was thinking about a single-payer system, it was looking into some of those authorities. Um, and then if we're kind of continuing the macro answer. There is some legal flexibility. We can talk more about how it works. But to the extent there's legal flexibility, it depends today entirely on the who's in charge at the federal level and what they're open to. It depends on some other things, too. But today, it depends on who's in charge at the federal level and what they're open to. Because all of the authorities that I'm talking about are actually authorities where Congress, in a statute, like the Medicare statute, the Medicaid statute, the Affordable Care Act, Congress, in a statute, said, here's the default rule. Here's the default funding flows. Here's what we're going to pay for. But the Secretary of Health and Human Services, you know, the federal appointee of the president, that person can, um, can um, adjust the payments. Or in the case of ACA and Medicaid, that person can waive the kind of default statutory provisions when requested by a state and provide for some changes. And those statutory authorities, some of them are actually pretty broad. So like the Medicaid statute, um, it says that uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, if asked by a state, can, can pay for, with federal dollars, costs throughout the state that would not otherwise be paid for by Medicaid if the Secretary of State says it uh, furthers the purposes of Medicaid, which are about uh, providing health care coverage and so on. We could talk a lot more about that. But to continue on the string here, Congress gave authority to the Secretary of Health and Human Services, basically discretion to change the way some of these federal programs work and the way the federal dollar flows work. But it's discretion. And if the Secretary is not interested in a, a particular state's proposal, then that's just a roadblock right there. And, and part of the reason I'm emphasizing that point is, as of today, um, the, the administrator for the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Seema Verma, um, she has said in public interviews, if a state were interested in single payer, we don't think that's really a worthwhile exercise. And, you know, as we talk, I might 
you know, I'd like to have the exact quote for you. Um, uh, the quote is, it doesn't make sense to waste time on something that's not going to work, is what the administrator said of state single payer. So today's CMS, the current CMS, would, quote, likely deny waivers to launch single payer systems, end quote. So that gets the end of my maybe. You know, you said, could you repurpose federal funds? Could you kind of get at those federal funds to pay for a state innovation single payer program? And the answer is, there's some legal flexibilities. We could talk more about what they are, but they all rest on the discretion today of the um, administrator and the secretary of HHS. And our current administrator has said, not interested in single payer. Well, it doesn't surprise me that she's not interested based on what she said, but I'd like to just ask a question. Do these waivers, once it happens, it happens, or do they have to be renewed yearly? Because if they have to be renewed, then there's a change of administration, and they could all go to, if you'll pardon me, could all go to hell. That's a great point. Um, they have to be renewed every five years, the Medicaid waivers. My memory is telling me that the Affordable Care Act waivers are also five-year. So in both of those cases, there is a big risk if you're a state that you would basically build your entire apparatus on a kind of flimsy floor. And I actually think your, your question tees up an issue, which is if you were uh, you know, a member of Congress or something thinking about changing the law to make it more possible for a state to experiment, then providing a mechanism where the state can rely on you know, funding continuing to be available for 10 years or something like that, at the very least, if they were setting something like that up. But you're right, under current law, it's, it's, it's every five years that they have to renew. One other question, and I like your opinion on this. One of the arguments I've heard for what I am loosely calling Medicaid for all is that states could better integrate that program with other social programs to help people who need help. Do you think that's valid or do you think that's true? I, I think it's worth thinking about. So if I understand the, the point you're flagging, it's that when we are talking about Medicare for all or universal coverage, we're generally talking about health insurance. And health insurance pays for health care costs, uh, which a person incurs because they were sick. And I don't know the extent to which you covered social determinants in prior podcasts, but um, you know, there's a lot of research out there especially in the public health space, that points out that many of the determinants of a person's health are upstream from um, the healthcare system itself. It's, uh, you know, a person having lead paint in their house or, uh, you know, improper nutrition when they're young or, or something else like that. Uh, the social determinants of health that wind up influence, influencing the likelihood a person becomes sick and so influencing ultimately healthcare costs. And if I understand kind of your question, uh, it is that if you have a world like our current world where the person who pays for health care costs at the end of the day, if a person gets sick, is different than the person who pays for education or nutrition or housing or transportation or investments in those upstream determinants of health. If you have two different entities responsible for those things, uh, then there are some 
um, kind of negative spillovers, uh, or put differently, there's there's less of an incentive to invest upstream in reducing healthcare costs than you might like. Um, because if I invest upstream and I'm, say, a state, well, let's let's just say a town. If you're a town and you're thinking, uh, you know, if we invest in better housing for our residents, that's going to make them healthier. You might want to do that, but you're trying to figure out how you're going to pay for it. And you might realize that actually, if we have better housing, it's going to improve our residents' health, which is going to reduce their healthcare costs, which will save a lot of money. But that money is going to be saved. It's going to save Medicare money, which is the federal government, or it might save Medicaid money, which is probably the state and not the town, or it's going to save an employer money or something like that. So it's just you can't tap into the kind of savings from your health investment to pay for the underlying investment. And that's, that's a challenge that you might, you know, that you might worry about. Uh, and you might worry about over the long term, the extent to which we're investing our kind of scarce dollars, treating people who have become sick, when maybe sometimes it would be better to invest those dollars in preventing people from becoming sick in the first place. And what's our system for making sure we're making the kind of right investment in deciding about whether to invest upstream or downstream? And it's, <laughs> that's a complicated, I guess, and, you know, understanding of your question. Um, but, you, you know, it's a great question. So, so, you know, the argument might be, well, a benefit of keeping states, you know, deeply involved in healthcare coverage is that states are responsible, as we're seeing in COVID, uh, states are responsible for the residents' public health under current law in a lot of ways. And if they're also paying for healthcare coverage costs, then that kind of aligns incentives and, and maybe they can do things um, or they have incentives to do things upstream. Now, let me just say one thing on that because we could talk all day. I think it's a really important point to say that it's a benefit of something like state single payer, that the state would be both responsible for, you know, public health regulation and the healthcare coverage of its residents. So it would kind of, in theory, be well positioned to make upstream investments if it's good to do that. I think that's a great point, but it, it's very much limited by the underlying point we started with, which is, well, a state might want to make great investments for its residents, but the state still needs the money up front to be able to do that. And it's going to need that money in year one that may not bear fruit until year 10 from a kind of a long-term public health investment. So it's a big limitation of that argument for state single payer uh, that the state, even if it had the perfect incentive to make investments, you know, it's upstream where it should, it may not just not have the means. Whereas the federal government, um, because it's got all the states, because it can borrow against United States credit, it's in a much better position to, you know, as we mentioned earlier, weather business cycle, and then also to kind of make long-term investments. One of the things, now obviously this podcast focuses on healthcare and health policy, but one of the things that I would like to see is a holistic system so that social services is working with somebody. Oh, it appears you have a health crisis problem? If we had Medicare for all, let's get you to a doctor. And the doctors, if they notice something, if a person comes in who's homeless, they could say, oh, we need to get you a studio. So you call. So ideally, I would like to see some integration 
so we could get the benefits from social determinants of health. And just one other quick comment. I interviewed Barbara Burney, who produced the documentary Power to Heal, Medicare and the Civil Rights Revolution. And she said she was talking to somebody who said, instead of social determinants, which makes it seem like we can't do anything, they should call these political determinants. Because we can do these things if we just have the political will. And I thought that was a great point. Yeah, I think that is a very interesting point. And to go back to our stream metaphor, you know, all the way downstream, I guess we're envisioning there is a person who has become sick. You know, somewhat upstream, we're envisioning is they were exposed to lead paint. Um, And then the point you just described is, well, let's go even further upstream. Why were they exposed to lead paint? There must have been somewhere a lack of political will to do something about that. I think it's just in general, I think that's just a really fascinating and interesting point. It's just in general, I find it often very useful to to stretch out that causal chain, as we just did, from the kind of end point we care about, which is the sick person, you know, to the upstream kind of causal points, you know, the fact that they were supposed to let paint, the fact that we didn't deal with that political process, you know, maybe even further up the chain. And it's often, I find, in in conversations, uh, and and I had a a mentor who told me this, and it it just stuck with me, that often people are disagreeing, not actually about necessarily what to do or what's good or bad, but about which point in the causal chain to look at. Um, And there's kind of values in in that choice itself. So someone who wants to look at the final point, maybe the person got sick and didn't go to the hospital quickly enough, and they might make it a question of individual choice, and there's kind of value in that. Um, focusing upstream on politics, there's, there's value in that. So I, I think it's a fascinating point. Um, uh, and to go back to your underlying question about how do we link up, you know, these systems, the healthcare system with the social system, I'll flag that there's a great book uh, that I found very useful. Um, I think it's Elizabeth Bradley and Lauren Taylor, and it's called um, The American Healthcare Paradox. And it, it you know, delves into that point you were just talking about, about uh, the relationship between our investment in social services in this country and our investment in healthcare coverage itself. And I think, you know, it's more than we can address in this conversation. But I think, you know, in a way, I'm just saying how much I love your questions. The question, when we're deciding, do we want Medicare for all, you know, at the federal level, or do we want Medicaid for all at the state level, or do we like our current system? Um, asking which of those approaches would help us to coordinate social services and, you know, kind of behavioral interventions with healthcare coverage itself and thereby reduce costs and, you know, improve health and all that. Asking which, you know, approach to healthcare coverage itself would help us coordinate and produce better outcomes uh, in the first place, I think is a great question to ask. Um, and, you know, on this, on the topic today, I'll just note that we've kind of flagged it's nice for a state to be the one providing healthcare coverage because it's also kind of front and center on social services. Maybe it's better able to coordinate, but we also flag, but maybe it's better able to coordinate, but the state is not well positioned to actually fund the, the interventions that you might need, especially looking at big investments that might take years to be worthwhile. And I'll say our conversation is trending towards maybe thinking, um, Either that's an argument that you should just have the federal government taking on the health care coverage cost and making sure it's doing something to incentivize states uh, or pay for state investments in social determinants, 
Uh, maybe that's one approach. Or maybe the other approach is if states are going to be doing uh, the healthcare coverage work, they need federal backing um, and they need kind of long-term reliable federal backing, as you pointed out, um, that would enable them to make those really big investments. Well, we could talk about that, as you said, all day. So we'll leave it there for now, but I will ask, before we end, do you have anything that you would like to add? Yeah, I would say one thing we have not addressed yet is that question about the distinction between universal coverage, which might entail simply a state, uh, as Massachusetts did, a state building on our existing fragmented system by adding a coverage mechanism for everybody who falls through the cracks. You know, so we have Medicare, we'll keep it. We have Medicaid, we'll keep it. We have employer insurance, we'll keep it. And we're going to add something to the people who fall through the cracks. And that is one kind of possible route to universal coverage, but would not get you single payer. Uh, on the other hand, you could imagine a state or the federal government saying, no, we're going to get rid of this fragmented system and we'll unify. And, you know, there's a lot of arguments and points every which way. I'll just flag that some of the benefits of single payer system, like reduced administrative burden, uh, you know, bargaining power, uh, those do not you know, uh, we do not get those from a universal coverage system that doesn't involve single payer. But then, of course, there's arguments for universal coverage as well. And then I'll flag one other point you, since you asked, which is we mentioned how if states' ability to experiment and use federal dollars to create their own single payer system is limited um, by, you know, the federal government's interest in it. I'll just note, you know, when Vermont applied and wanted to go single payer, it ran into financial obstacles. Uh, there's, you know, we law professors, we love talking about federalism and the value of state experimentation. And I'll just like flag, it's my personal view, to the extent I have views, that the first state that tries single payer, if we ever have that, it's doing a great service for the whole country. You know, we, we argue, we debate about single payer and different reforms. You know, Massachusetts, when it did its covering expansion, that was a great service to the country. We all got to see that. We got to see what worked, what didn't work. That was the building block for the ACA. So I would just, I would just argue maybe to the next administrator of CMS that the first state that wants to try single payer or something like it should be given extra leash, should be given maybe extra money to try that out, uh, even if it costs the federal government a little more, um, uh, because that state's doing a great service. If it winds up working, then that will help other states. It'll help the whole country. If it winds up not working, we'll still have learned something. So that's my pitch for uh, kind of rewarding the pioneers. Okay, well, I think given the situation, I happen to think that the best thing would be a single-payer Medicare-for-all system financed by the federal government. But, you know, because as you said, there are so many other issues if we don't do it that way. And we still, I think, need to address what most people call the social determinants, I like to call them the political determinants. But those, you know, those are important issues, and I think they need an airing. But we'll have to leave that aside. So, Professor Lawrence, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a great conversation. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. 
Thank you for listening. 